Scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 811. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of the Lord. You guys can be seen. Church, I love you dearly. Um, You're my brothers and you're my sisters in Christ. And so um, just as that uh, one article is my Professor said, these are, these are exciting days because I think we're moving rapidly into the place where we're going to see this world where the book of Acts kind of stuff is going to come more to light as we faithfully live out the gospel. Um, in light of all that, it feels really anticlimactic to go to my illustration right now that I was going to use to start off uh, the sermon this morning, which stinks because I feel like it was a really good one. Um, and so what we might do, too, just because um, we, we took some time on that, is I, I might just try to skip some parts of my manuscript as well. But what I want to do is forsake some parts. And so, so what I'm going to do is just try to condense some bits as we, as we go forward and just read some, some pieces here that I want us to talk on. When you turn to the scriptures here and you come to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount in the Lord's Prayer, what I think Jesus is doing, he's teaching, is this, this bigger idea. That it is possible to have a wrong idea, a wrong understanding of someone, which leads to wrong action. Jesus, in a way, has been talking about this for a while, talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a poor view of God, a low view of God, a false view of God, and it led to a lot of wrong action on their part. And in a sense, when Jesus comes to the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about prayer, he's addressing the same idea. He's going to give two examples of two groups of people that have a wrong view of God. They have a false view of God. They have a low view of God. And because they don't have this right understanding, this right plumb line of who God is, it's led them to pray in a wrong way. 
And so what Jesus is going to do this morning is challenge our view of God in regard to prayer so that we can see a right view of God, have a right theology, a right understanding of who God is so that we can then be led to a right action. This right action specifically this morning being this idea of prayer. So this morning, I think Jesus is going to hold up two two big ideas. He's going to show up this false way, this wrong way. He's going to say that true prayer is not man-centered. The moment you lose sight of a right understanding of who God is, a right theology of God, you very quickly, in regard to prayer, drift to a man-centered view of prayer. And he's going to teach us, don't do it. Don't go there. And over against this, what Jesus is going to do is turn, he's going to lift up and say that true prayer is ultimately God-centered. And he's even going to challenge us on our notion of the way we think here, because when we hear that prayer is meant to be, true prayer is God-centered, it sounds like what we're saying is we always pray with God in mind, but we never pray for anything for ourselves. And we're going to see very clearly from the Lord's model prayer is that that's so far from the truth. So two ideas that are going to be lifted up by Jesus this morning. True prayer is not man-centered, but true prayer is God-centered. In your copy of Scripture, look at verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues, at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they have received the reward when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verses 7 and 8, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, true prayer is not man-centered. At its core, man-centered prayer is the fruit of a heart that is in love with itself. To view prayer through a man-centered lens is an abuse because it sees prayer as something that ought to serve the desires of man. Prayer like this is not to be found among kingdom citizens, Jesus says. The purpose of prayer is not man-centered. So Jesus combats this man-centered way of thinking by giving us two illustrations where he teaches us that prayer is meant to be private and prayer is meant to be confident. So in those first two verses, verses 5 and 6, Jesus shows us that prayer is meant to be private. Some people pray fueled by the approval of man, therefore they act a certain way using prayer to get what they want. For them, Prayer is meant to be public and geared toward an audience of man. They want to be seen by others. And so Jesus says they act a certain way. They have a wrong view of God, a wrong view of prayer, and it leads them to act wrongly. They're motivated by this. They want to be seen by others. So they go to the synagogues, they stand in the street corners, and they exhibit their action of prayer before other people so they can get something for themselves. Jesus says ultimately they're hypocrites and they've received the reward. So Jesus counters this man-centered way by shifting the mindset. Listen, prayer is not merely to be a public act. Prayer is not a man-centered ordeal. Prayer is not a man-centered way to just get things that you want. 
Jesus strikes at their self-love by teaching that prayer first and foremost is meant to be private. This doesn't mean that you never pray in public. right? It's not wrong to be seen praying, but it is wrong to pray in order to be seen. That's what Jesus is teaching. What Jesus is driving at is that the deceitfulness of sin which entangles our hearts, causing us to pervert prayer as a means of getting praise from men. So Jesus says the call to private prayer is the call to orient our prayers toward an audience of one. Jesus knows that there's always an audience to prayer. It's either going to be men or it's either going to be God. Some of us are motivated to pray in such a way where we say, I want you to know how awesome I am. I'm going to use big words and fancy phrases, a lot of Christianese and religious sort of terminology so that you can step back in in amazement and awe and wonder at just how really awesome I am. And he says, "Don't, don't be like that. Give yourselves over first and foremost to private prayer because in private prayer, What you're doing is you come and you undercut the legs of prayer that is man-centered. Private prayer counteracts our man-centered tendencies for it takes us to the place where all we get is God himself. And Jesus reminds his disciples of this simple truth. You know you are in the place that pleases God when you can be satisfied with prayer that only gets you God. If you are satisfied to never pray in public and people never know you pray because you're praying in private because you are so in love with God, so desperate for God that you want to have that audience of one with God, if you are in that place, Christ, I believe, teaches that is in the place where you find the reward of the Father because you're just satisfied to get God himself and no one else. And he says that's the place you want to be. Private prayer undercuts our tendency to turn prayer into a way to make much of ourselves. Jesus turns, verses 7 and 8, and says, not only is prayer to be private, but our prayer is to be confident. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So on the other hand, some people pray because they're just simply fueled by poor theology. They have a wrong view of who God is. Therefore, they attempt to coerce God with many words into doing what they want. They heap up empty phrases for they think they will be heard for their many words. Jesus makes reference to the Gentiles. He says, the Gentiles of Jesus' day, the unbelievers of the Old Testament, these people who are godless and hopeless without a true knowledge of the living God, they give themselves over to this way of thinking. These unbelievers thought if they named all of their gods and addressed their petitions to each one of them and then repeated themselves a few times, they would have a better chance of receiving an answer. Ultimately, what this betrays is that you are operating with a mindset of of prayer that portrays your lack of confidence. This misunderstanding of who God is led them to the place where they just mindlessly piled up phrases in order to pester their God into getting them what they wanted. So you can just see them operating like this, like, okay, I've got this whole, this whole panorama of gods, and I just don't know if they want to hear. I don't even know if they care about me. They might be sleeping. They might be slumbering. They might be lazy. They might not care to act. And so what I need to do is just pile up phrases and babble and babble and babble and babble and just sort of mindlessly switch into a mechanical word where hopefully you just get to the point where the god's like, oh, fine, enough. I'm going to give you what you want, take care of it, and just get out of here. 
And Jesus says, prayer for the believer, for the gospel citizen that's been enfolded into the family of God is not to be that way. Do not be like them. Our God does not operate like this. Instead, Jesus says, take great confidence in this. See, the Gentiles showed their lack of confidence by trying to use their words to coerce their God to get that God to do what they want. Jesus says, approach God with this right knowledge of God. Take extreme confidence. Because your God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Your God is actually so powerful, so different, so other than the Gentiles' gods that your Father actually already knows what you need before you ask Him. See, Jesus is promoting a high view of prayer by pointing to a high view of God. What Jesus is saying in that last phrase in verse 8 when he says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He is teaching us that God is sovereign. And the fact that your Father knows what you need before you ask Him does not kill the motivation for prayer. I hear this a lot. People will read verses like this. Okay, if my father already knows what I need before I ask him, then why on earth should I pray? I mean, after all, I'm already telling him something he already knows. If God is sovereign and he knows what's about to come out of my mouth, if he knows my need that I'm about to ask for even before I even knew to ask for it, like why on earth should I pray? But notice Jesus doesn't use God's sovereignty as a reason to kill prayer. He doesn't say, your father knows what you need before you ask him, so give up on prayer, please, and let's move on down the line. No, Jesus teaches that the sovereignty of God actually kills man-centered, self-glorifying prayer and in turn fuels God-centered, God-glorifying, confident prayer. See, in Scripture, you constantly see the truth of God's sovereignty fuel the prayer of God's people to turn and pray for God's glory to be shown. You see that, that little link in the chain happen all the time. Book of Psalms, the prayers in the book of Acts, the prayers you bump into in the New Testament letters. You constantly see God's people rightly declaring, God, you are sovereign. You rule and you reign. You have authority over all things. You're in the heavens and you do and you, as you see fit. And this right view of God, God being a sovereign God, fuels the prayer of God's people to turn and say, because this is a right reality, God, I want your glory to be known across the four corners of the earth. Here, Jesus stands at the end of verse 8, calling his kingdom citizens to put away their puny, man-centered prayers and to be motivated by the sovereignty of their Father who knows what they need. It's like Jesus is saying, understand, lay a vision, grab hold of this beautiful reality that your father already knows what you need before you ask him and let this right reality orient you back to a God-centered way of praying. And it is upon this hinge in verse 8 that Jesus turns to prayer that is God-centered. So he says, your tendency might be to make prayer your own, but let me help you with that. Let prayer be private, undercut that man-centered tendency. 
You might have a tendency to try to coerce God with many words. I've got to say something in a certain way so I can get something out of God. Jesus says, take great confidence. He already knows what you need before you ask him. Rest in that reality. Undercut your man-centered tendency to use prayer as a way to manipulate God. Rest in the confidence that your God already knows what you need before you ask him. And then like a door turns on its hinge, Jesus switches from this reality that our God is sovereign. And then he takes us right to the place where he says, now let me show you what this looks like. Let me show you how true prayer is God-centered. It is here that we get the words of Christ, the Lord's Prayer. Verses 9 through 13. Jesus comes around and he says, In light of this reality, pray then like this. Since you know your Father, since your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, this should inform you to open your mouth with a heart fueled by that reality to speak these words. Our Father in heaven, we want you to make your name holy. Father in heaven, we want your kingdom to come. Father in heaven, we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Father, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Father, we are in desperate need of you to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. To take us to the place where we can forgive others their trespasses, rightly representing that you, Heavenly Father, have forgiven us. See, the Lord's Prayer is not something that we are mind, to mindlessly repeat in a mechanical fashion. Jesus didn't say, your Father already knows what you need, so just memorize this one prayer and that's the only thing you're ever supposed to say. What he's doing is he's building us a skeleton. He's building us a model, something we can pattern prayer after. Jesus lays out a framework of six petitions where the first three petitions call us Godward for God-centered prayers concerned with the glory of God. And only then, after we have rightly oriented ourselves Godward, does Jesus then turn and focus on the second three petitions, which focus on man's needs for God-centered prayers also concerned with the needs of man. I mean, look in your piece of Scripture here. There's a very clear order that Jesus lays this out. The first three petitions are, God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And these three petitions, these three prayers are rightly taking us and grabbing us and orienting us to our Father who is in heaven. And then it is only then that it turns and says, Now, in light of this reality, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from evil. The first thing we have to recognize is that God-centered prayer is concerned with the glory of God. And that's why Jesus goes there as his first step in this prayer. Jesus calls us to address God as our Father in heaven. And this opening phrase is meant to set the tone for the entire prayer. God is our Father in the sense that he's created us, rules over us, sustains us. And God is our Father in the sense... That for those of us who are born again believers, repented of sin, placed faith in Christ, God is our Father because He is the Father of our salvation. We are sons and daughters of God. He's brought us into His family. 
Our God is also in heaven, which refers to his authority and his power. So God's throne room is in heaven, and this is the place from which he sovereignly reigns as the creator and the ruler of all things. Jesus teaches us to start our prayers by acknowledging who God is because it is the love of our Father and the truth of his power which radically affect the way we pray. To know God as our Father in heaven will take us to the place where we naturally desire to pray for his glory, to pray for his kingdom, and to pray for his will. I mean, just think about Think if we would just as a people come together... Think about if we were just to come together as in our personal prayer times, in our times of Bible reading, as we saturate ourselves in the Word, to just stop and meditate on the words of our Father in heaven, to rightly always orient ourselves to God in this way before we start praying. It would be revolutionary. Oftentimes, my prayer to the Father is this. I make a beeline to the last half of that verse. God, I need something. God, give me something. God, fix this thing. Steer this thing. And unfortunately, I've got a little bit of me always floating around in that. But Jesus says, don't go there first. Do this. Orient yourself. Our God in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Father. Let his fatherliness overwhelm you. Let his reality that he is in heaven stir you to pray rightly so jesus says once you orient yourself to the father in this way our father in heaven pray for this hallowed be your name hallowed is a weird word i don't know when the last time you guys have used it Nobody didn't drop hallowed last week in, at the office. Hallowed's a weird word. What does it mean? It means this, to make holy. So we're asking God to make his name holy. God, you're, you're my father. You're in heaven. The love of the father I know, his rule and his reign, the authority the sovereignty of our God, that's overwhelming. God, I want you to make your name holy. I want your name to be spread. I want the fame and the glory of your person to be known. God, do and act in such a way that your name will be set apart. See, the highest goal of prayer is to ask that God's name be hallowed. That's why Jesus, I think, makes a beeline to that point. This prayer... of hallowed be your name necessarily removes man from the center of the picture and gives that place to God alone. To pray that God's name be hallowed or treated as holy is to pray that God's character, his reputation, and his presence be set apart as superior in every corner of all creation. See, when we describe God as holy, what we're saying is this, is that God is one of a kind. We're saying that God is unique. We're saying that God is one. Nobody like him. Try as hard as you want. You'll never find anybody who is like our God. So when the Bible describes God as holy, when we come along and take the words of Scripture that describe God as holy, what we're saying is this, that God is one of a kind. 
only God is holy in that God alone is utterly unique. The holiness of God lends to the uniqueness of God. He's unique. No one else is like him. He is the one who is one in essence, three in person. He is the one who is omnipotent, omniscient. He's the one who knows all things, acts all things. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. There's no one like our God. He is utterly unique. And it is this utter uniqueness of God which makes God infinitely valuable. So think about it. When you went to the antique store the other day, and you were shopping around in the antique store for a chair, and you saw that one little chair that looked crazy old over in the corner, and you walk up to it, and you see they're trying to sell that chair for $50,000, and you nearly have a stroke. And you're like, why on earth is that chair over there $50,000? No antique chair should be worth $50,000. That is until you find out that it's one of a kind. There's not another one like it in the world. It's a Chippendale chair made in the 1750s. Crafted by man himself and all of a sudden you go I can see why that thing is $50,000 now it's unique there's nothing else like it it's one of a kind the uniqueness of that chair lends to its value and just as God is himself entirely unique it lends to his utter intrinsic value See, God's holiness is his intrinsic value, and his glory is the manifest display of this value. God's holiness is his utter uniqueness, his great value. That describes who God is. And the question then becomes, how do we see God's holiness on display in the world around us? The singular word the Bible uses to describe the utter uniqueness of God is this one word, glory. God's glory is the external display of his utter uniqueness. God's glory is the external display of how God is infinitely valuable and no one else is like him. So to pray, our Father in heaven... Please set your name apart as holy is to pray in such a way where our prayers come in line with the utter uniqueness of God, His holiness, asking God to work in such a way that will externally display the infinite value of His name, His glory. See, we have to understand what Jesus is driving at here. God loves His glory. And it is good and right for you and I to pray to that end that God would manifest his glory. And you and I can stake the answers to our prayers on God's love for his glory. We can make our case before his throne to our Father in heaven on the grounds that God does everything for the sake of his name. So when we come along with Jeremiah in chapter 14 and say, God, act, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. What Jeremiah is saying is, God, we're desperate for you to move. Not so that we can boast in ourselves, but so that you can boast in your name. Act for your name's sake. Psalm 79, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. 
God, we need deliverance here. We need rescuing here. Deliver us. Atone for our sins. Why? For your name's sake. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, I think simply put, what he's saying is this. He is granting us a way. He's giving us a way. He's showing us a way. He's modeling a way for us to come and petition for God to glorify himself as God. And it is this first petition which naturally leads to the second and the third. There's a reason why Jesus goes straight here. Because what he's doing, he's just taking the idea of prayer, and he's just grounding it, grounding it right in the majesty of God. He's saying, prayer, dare not make prayer into a thing about you. Prayer is a means ordained by God, given to you so that you can rightly orient yourself to God and pray in such a way that God will answer that prayer, delight to answer that prayer, making much of his name and bringing great pleasure to you as you delight in praying in this way. See, Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done as on, earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So what he's praying for is the kingly rule of God to spread upon the earth. This is the good news of the kingdom. So I think what Jesus is saying, if this is the reality, that we're asking for God to make his name holy, to show his holiness, to manifest his holiness, to show his glory, that what we're saying is God, just as this reality is true in, in heaven... We want this reality to be true on the earth. Just as your kingdom knows no end in heaven, we want this kingdom reality to be known on earth. Just as your will is done in heaven, just as what the king wants done gets done in heaven, we want this reality to be done here here on earth. See, God's will is that his name be made holy among the nations, just as it is in heaven. And his will is that his kingdom may come in its fullness here on earth, just as it is in heaven. And Jesus calls us to delight ourselves as we pray for God's glory, God's kingdom, and God's will. See, God-centered prayer is concentrated on the glory of God. But notice that the prayer just doesn't stop there. Even in light of this radical shifting Godward, Jesus says it is right to then turn and pray for the horizontals of life. God-centered prayer is concerned with the glory of God, but God-centered prayer is also concerned with the needs of man. It's for this reason that Jesus encourages us to pray for our material need, give us this day our daily bread, to pray for our spiritual need, forgive us our debts as we forgive our, our debtors, and to pray for our moral need. God, lead us into the place of no temptation, but deliver us from evil. I love this quote. Sinclair Ferguson sums this thought up so well of what Jesus is driving at in these last verses. He says, God in his kingdom must always take a priority over man and his needs. Always. God's kingdom must always take a priority over man and his needs. But God's glory does not detract from man's life. Instead, his glory is the sun around which the whole of life must revolve if there is to be the light and life of God in our experience. Since we were made 
for God's glory, we will always malfunction whenever we fail to live for that purpose and according to the maker's instructions. It becomes incredibly clear what Jesus is doing here. He's saying this. The moment that we operate our life with a man-centered tendency and it even manifests itself through prayer, what you're doing is you're walking a path that's ultimately going to lead to destruction and malfunction. Because what you're not supposed to do are take the things of God and wield them for personal self-gain. What we're actually to do is to anchor ourselves in orbit around God and his glory and his majesty and his name's sake. And it is only then, once we get that ordering right, God first, kingdom first, me and my life second, that life begins to make sense. That's why Jesus says, listen, hallowed be your name, kingdom come, your will be done. Now, are you anchored there? Yes, Jesus, I think so. Good. Now, in light of you rightly being oriented to God himself, begin to pray and think in this way. Give us, forgive us, deliver us. Jesus is calling us to, to anchor ourselves, praying, give us this day our daily bread. We're in desperate need of God's daily provision for all the necessities of life. We pray, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors because we're in desperate need of God's grace. We're to even pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because we are in desperate need of the protection of God from evil. We need God to lead us into righteousness, into situations where far from being tempted, we are protected and delivered from the evil one. So how how do you react to this? The tendency is to come to Matthew chapter 6, reach in, grab verses 9 through 13, pull them out, and go, man, Jesus really nailed it with that little prayer, didn't he? We almost treat the Lord's Prayer like some some little tweet, you know. Jesus tweeting out some little, great little blurb. Hey, man, I know what really gets some major hits. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I mean, people are going to eat that up. That'll be great. But my argument for this morning, the path I try to travel is this, because you could do this to the scripture, come along and go, like, I don't really know how to pray, and we can become sort of like, you know, practicality 101, like how are we supposed to pray? And we can give like the mechanics, first pray this, second pray this, third pray this, fourth, fifth, on down the line. But I think Jesus is shooting for something higher here. Whenever he says, pray in this way. Orient yourself, center yourself on God. See, at at first read, the breadth and depth of this prayer takes your breath away. This prayer is Jesus with perfection leading his disciples down the path of true prayer that centers them on God himself. But the unfortunate thing is this, that about this prayer, what we do is we take it, pull it out of context, and the moment we pull it out of context, the prayer, in a sense, loses its power. We come along and we focus on verses 9 through 13 and we miss the bigger picture that Jesus is painting. See, this is no random prayer just peppered in the middle of his sermon. This prayer is the cement, I would argue, that holds the sermon together. So when we're praying and we're coming along saying, God, hallowed be your name. We want your name to be made, to be made known. What Jesus is saying is, I've already talked to you about this. 
You go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and you look through the first 20 verses, you have Jesus is saying, is this is what a disciple looks like. This is what it looks like to represent God here on earth. And the result of this sort of kingdom living looks like this. Yes, you might be persecuted, but one result of living like Christ, being a Christ-like witness on this earth is this, is that you will be salt in this earth and you will be light in this world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So when we pray, God, hallowed be your name, it's not sort of some abstract thing out there. We're like, God, get this done and don't you dare use me. What Jesus has already been teaching is, pray this way, God, hallowed be your name. And he says, yes, and I'm going to use you to do this. When you live like me in a world in such a countercultural way, that is how my name is going to be hallowed. And so he says, pray to this end. When Jesus says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we do this? He's given us the answer. It looks like Matthew 5, 21 through 48. The way that you show what kingdom life is like, the way that you show what it looks like to bow yourself underneath the will of God is to not let anger destroy your relationships, to not let lust rule in your heart, to exhibit a biblical marriage, to be one who tells the truth, to not resist the one who is evil, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is how we exhibit the kingdom here on earth. That is how we show people what it looks like to live submitted to the will of God. Give us this day our daily bread. God, we need your daily provision. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has already talked about that. God is a giver freely giving us grace. And he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet, but act in such a way where you're just doing it as the overflow of the free grace that you've been given. God, I need daily your grace. God, I need daily your forgiveness. It is hard for me to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm telling you, God, help me, forgive me, make me know my state that I once was your enemy, but you've shown me grace. Help me to see this reality so that I can turn and forgive others as I have freely been forgiven. God, deliver us from evil. Because those are going to come against me, and I'm to not resist the one who is evil. It's hard to turn the other cheek when someone slaps you on the right. It's hard to not stand on my rights and sue somebody when they come against me in anger. It's hard for me to freely volunteer my time and my service when someone comes and treads, treads on me. It's hard for me to give freely as you have freely given to me. See, when we take the Sermon on the Mount and we just grab it and pluck it out of context, what we lose is its power. We lose the power of Jesus teaching us that you can't do all these things we've been talking about on our own. Right? That's sort of been the chorus line the whole time we've been talking. Jesus, I can't do these things. And Jesus leans over and goes, yeah. So pray. Pray, God, do these things in me. But see, the beauty is this, is that Jesus doesn't stand aloof in some corner saying, hey, I'm asking you to do some things. I know you can't do it, so please just pray about it and hopefully it gets done. What Jesus does is he enters right into the fray and he says, just as much 
as I'm calling you to pray and operate and think this way, I'm going to exhibit it by fully modeling it for you. See, Jesus, over and over, you see this in the Gospel of John, says, God, I'm doing this so that your name will be glorified. Father, glorify your name through my actions about what I'm about to do. See, the kingdom came, the, the, when, the, when this idea of your kingdom come, that idea came with the first coming of Christ. Jesus instituted the coming of the kingdom with his first coming. When he says, your will be done, you have a picture of Jesus in the garden saying, I'm going to establish your kingdom here. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm about to drink this cup of, cup of wrath. It's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be pleasant, but not my will done, but what? Your will be done. And Jesus institutes the kingdom rooted in the cross by saying, I'm going to seek to make your name holy so that it will spread to the four corners of the globe. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Fox have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has nothing. He daily relied upon the provision of God. Christ forgave at the cross. He was, could freely forgive his debtors. You go to Matthew chapter 4, you see the temptation of Christ. What you have is this picture of Jesus being delivered from evil as he's completely banking on, resting on the provision of God and his word. See, Jesus is the one who completely epitomizes everything here. And the writer of Hebrews says it the most succinctly way that I can think of, and it is meant to spur us toward great hope. I'm going to end with this. The writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We have to understand this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Quite the contrary. We have a great high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet, without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the great high priest who's praying on our behalf, tempted as we were tempted, tempted as you were tempted, yet without sin. Jesus paints the picture, models the way of what it looks like for us to be able to pray with confidence, enter with confidence before our Father who is in heaven, before his throne, which is now a throne of grace because of what the great high priest has done. And we can now step into that place where we receive mercy, we receive grace, and we receive help in our time of need. So my challenge for you is this as we leave and go forward from here today is that you just simply pray a singular prayer during this time as we respond where you ask God, God, show me when I pray, am I man-centered in my prayers or am I God-centered in my prayers? And that you quiet your heart before the Lord and you listen to what he has to say and then whatever way he speaks, you rightly respond.